Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to the Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra-talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creativity. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Thanks for listening. If you have even the slightest interest in cars or the culture that surrounds them, chances are you already follow my friend Ted Gashu on Instagram. The fact that as a newborn he was brought home from the hospital in a red Porsche 911 was a beautiful piece of foreshadowing, as he now serves as the editor-in-chief of Type 7, a platform he created with the brand to expand the Porsche world as it relates to art, architecture, design, and overall culture. This international man of mystery lives by the credo, if you don't do it today, you'll just be a year older when you do. That philosophy has manifested itself time and time again in an inspiring life driven by asking questions, telling stories, and feeding his boundless curiosity through constantly changing surroundings and company. But what happens when you go from logging over 100 flights a year to being grounded due to a global health crisis? Ted is not one to find comfort in the slow lane and opened up about his road back to balanced mental health through re-embracing an old friend, movement. We discussed his years navigating the New York social scene as a DJ and nightlife reporter, how a phone call from Graydon Carter supercharged his career as an editor, and how going 65 miles an hour headfirst down a handmade skeleton luge ice track in eastern Switzerland can really satiate your need for speed, even if your mom, understandably, does not approve. Buckle up and let's head to Porto Cervo. Hey. Ciao. Ciao. Buonasera. <laughs> Buonasera. Come stai? Bene, bene. E te? Benissimo. Possiamo fare questa intervista in italiano, se tu vuoi. <laughs> sì, con piacere. Quando vuoi, come vuoi. <laughs> You're in Sardinia now, right? Yeah, I'm at my friend's house for the foreseeable future, just chilling out, being healthy, uh, de- decompressing from a very boozy winter. Excellent. I love that a friend's house in Sardinia is like your version of a health retreat. Yeah, I mean, there's everything's closed, so we're just eating nice here, nice meals here, and uh, yeah. I know you're not one to commit to a fixed home address, but what is summer looking like for you? Are you going to stick around Italy potentially? Uh, I was waiting to get in Japan, but that doesn't look good. So I think, uh, yeah, I'll be in Monaco for the Grand Prix end of May, and then in between now and then, I have no plans. So we see. 
Yeah, no, it's life is good here, I have to say. Awesome. So are you fully out of living in London for now? I mean, I haven't been there since uh, September 2020. No, no, sorry, June, June. I left in June. I haven't been back to London since June 2020. I remember that. And it, it feels like it all happened so fast because I crashed with you on that houseboat last time I was in London. And I guess that was in November 2019. And then like four months later, the city was in lockdown. And then the minute things opened up, I remember you like grabbed a couple of cigars and hopped in your 9-11 and drove to Italy. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> Do you feel like COVID's kind of brought back the road trip a little bit? I mean, for me, it has just because I'm not here legally. So flying is risky. Right. But land borders, no issue. Uh, I'll be a Dutch resident uh, latest end of May, um, which would be nice. Okay. Then I'll be legal to be in Europe as long as I like. Nice. Can you tell me a bit about the history of that 9-11 of yours? Yeah, it's uh, it's my dad's. He he bought it in 1992 or three, and then I was raised in the car, and then I bought it from him. Well, not, not exactly right. I, I, I was given the car, and then I had to restore it. So my restoration was the was my uh was my purchasing if that makes sense was that the first car you really remember connecting with when you were younger mm, no we always had interesting cars uh you know i came home from the hospital in, in, a, in a red 911 wow. very similar so we always you know these were old cars and they were cheap so uh so super easy your whole family is really into automotive culture right yeah absolutely they just uh we've just always dug cars and had fun with it yeah yeah, it's so fun whenever I see photos of your mom, too, and like what she happens to be driving and all that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, I grew up outside New York City in a commuter town called Wilton, which is a, people, a lot of people know Greenwich. My, my dad's an architect in, in Greenwich, and uh, that's about 15 minutes away from where I grew up. You know, just a really idyllic, nice countryside childhood, public schools. Really, uh, really a fun time. You know, I, I, I grew up in the shadow of New York. So everything about my life was up until school was about getting into New York City. So I went to school in Rhode Island and then uh, I studied finance because I thought that would be the most efficient way to have a life in New York. And right. you know, I graduated. I couldn't find a single internship uh, to save my life in finance because it was 2008, 2009 which was the first big global right. financial crisis of my life. And then and I guess that was three crises ago. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm losing count. How many crises? We, I think we're just in a perpetual state of crises now, which I, I, I seem to do. Be, I've never done better than, uh, You're than thriving. the world burnings. I think, you know, I, I, I just posted a picture on my Instagram. It was like a, a woman crying next to a crashed plane in 2020. And then, and then she's still next to the crash plane, but now she's wearing a bikini and she's tanning. And I think that's kind of, <laughs> I think that's kind of how I feel. It's like uh, you can either cry next to the crash plane, or you right. can get a tan on the beach on the deserted island you're stuck on. So I'm like, totally. oh, fuck it, I'll get, I'll get, I'll get a tan. Yeah. So then you ended up studying photography after finance. No, I always had, I, I'd always been into photography. My dad was into photography, and then he bought me a camera when I was very young, and then. Uh, then I, I I bought a super used, uh, beat up old Canon D50, D60, something like this, like a really uh, very early early uh, digital SLR Canon. And then I, I photographed like I was nonstop in high school, just taking pictures of everything. And then in university, I had a, I took a minor in photography, in fine art photography. And then my my internship in 2009 was at Christie's Auction House because oh, that was the only cool. thing I could find. 
and I just happened to sweet talk the director of the of the program, and she was a really fun old lady. And uh, I, mean, I don't think she was even that old at the time, but she's she's older now. And uh, and she was just the sweetest, like most motherly, fun, eccentric art collector, Upper East Side chick named Mary Libby, and she kind of took me under her wing and. I spent uh, six months, or, or no, I guess some whole summer living in New York at my friend's apartment in the Upper East Side and just partying and meeting people and learning about the art world and, and having the most epic summer. And then I went back to school and I, I'd been a DJ in, in university. And then so I basically, once I graduated, I, I didn't even go home. I didn't even stop at home. I, I think I packed my apartment up and drove straight to New York where I sublet, I subletted a, a room from a friend of mine in FIDI in uh, the financial district. And I started dating a girl who knew a nightclub owner, Matt Levine, who owned a, a club called The Eldridge. And I started DJing at The Eldridge on Wednesday nights. And uh, then that became a whole, a whole thing, which is quite fun. What an incredible introduction to New York, like art, nightlife, culture, immediately. Yeah, I was... Uh, I had known all these Upper East Side kids from years of, of hanging out in the city. And that whole last summer, I got to know all them, uh, you know, people hang out at this bar called Dorian's and which uh, is a really nice group of kids from the country who all lived in New York and still friends with all of them to this day. I, I think you probably you, you probably know a bunch of them as well. And yeah, I just started. They all started coming to my DJ nights and they kind of took off. And then this guy named John Munson, we were offered a, a party every Friday night. I know John. So, everyone knows John. <laughs> At the Soho Grand Club Room, I was one of the first parties at the Soho Grand Club Room, and that lasted for two years. Every Friday, we did not miss a single Friday for two years in a row. Wow! Uh, which was which was crazy. So we had, uh, you know, I was getting paid real money. It was like a thousand bucks a night cash, and I was working two, three nights a week with all of my lifestyle paid for. So I couldn't pay for a drink anywhere I went. Right. You know, I, I had a, a beautiful girlfriend. I had. Uh, a killer apartment eventually uh, on uh, Union Square, the big loft uh, I was sharing with a, a friend named Tom Leverett, a portrait painter from England. And uh, and then that just was was the best. I mean, this New York at that time, 2010 to 2014, 15 was really full gas. And I think, you know, you, you also experienced that as well. At that point, New York had fully recovered from the financial collapse Money was everywhere. People were partying nonstop. Like, you know, it was totally normal to stay out till 6 a.m. Totally. Four nights a week. So to be 22 in that in that environment with cash in your pocket was like, you know, it was rocket fuel. Every, everything was possible. And I met a bazillion people. And then one of the people I met was this guy named Calvin Yee, uh, who was a director at a, a consulting firm, a small consulting firm that was doing leadership uh, consultancy and basically C-suite advisory for Dow Jones um, and NASA. Uh, so this, the, the Goddard Research Center in Ohio, and then a few other companies that I didn't get to work on, unfortunately, but those are the two I focused on. And he, uh, he hired me uh, while I was still DJing at night. So wow, I was a management consultant by day, winging it, and then a DJ by night. So it was uh, at that point, I was yeah 23, I think, and was working basically 20 hours a day having a blast. <laughs> I feel like those two things have always gone together. For you, you're always working really hard and then simultaneously having like the best life. Well, the, the one thing of living in New York and having a background and a knowledge of the financial world and, and having a great network of people who are wor working really hard in that world 
is that you started to see the whole reason that they were working in that world was to be able to afford to come hang out with me at night. Not me, right. like, you know, the, the concept of someone like me, of, of like, you know, where's the party? So these guys would slave all day, bust their ass, and then finally, you know, have enough money to go to the party till two in the morning. And so I was like, well, what if I just got paid to party <laughs> all the time? You know, like, like, what if I just cut out the middleman? Like, why do I need right. to have a shitty desk job right. when I could kind of... To pay for a drink you're getting for free. Yeah, it was, it, it kind of opened my eyes that like, maybe there's another another way to you know you know to get to the same result and uh which i think was the most valuable lesson i ever learned was like you know you don't have to go work 60 hour weeks just to be able to enjoy the weekend like yeah. the weekend can be every day i work 7 days a week but i'm always at like 60% right so like today i i went on a hike uh, i took my call while i was on a hike i flew my drone for a little while and fooled around with that you know, uh, commissioned a bunch of stories for this project we're working on and, you know, just had, had a really good day, but it was a work day, but that day would look the same on a Sunday. So right. for me now, uh, every, the way that my life is constructed, it's really, it's about me maximizing return on investment. And, and, and I, I mean, investment in the term of time, you know, mm -hmm. I'm very happy to turn down a very lucrative project if it means that I can't enjoy my life while I'm working on it. For sure. So with that history with DJing, what do you think about the idea of curatorial crossover between medium, like individual taste moving from auditory to visual with a sort of sensory predisposition toward beauty and things that end up being enjoyable to other people? Well, being a DJ really kind of... How do I describe this? You immediately understand why people go into uh, into the church. You know, like like uh, you you immediately understand why why somebody would become like a pastor or right because it's it's all about reading people, understanding what they need, and then giving it to them in a package that that they didn't expect. Hmm. So you know, I, I think that goes the same for the you know the church. That goes the same for DJing. It goes the same for editing a magazine it goes yeah. to say you know you're, it's all about understanding your audience yeah and seeing what they're craving and finding a surprising way to give it to them and i think that's that's the skill set i accidentally learned when i was djing and then so i spent that year doing leadership consulting and, uh, and then they asked me to go to business school. And I said, no, I'm not going to business school. I said, you know, it's 150 grand. I don't really. And, and I already had the network right. at that point because of my DJing and, and the parties I was throwing. I knew every MD at every bank. Mm. I knew like all the big VC guys in, in New York at the time. I was really well networked. So I was like, you know, and to me, business school is 90% the network that you get coming out of it. Sure, I, you know, you, right. you learn how to read a PL and all this other stuff. But to me, it had nothing to do with what I wanted to be doing. So I said, look, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna step out. Thank you for the opportunity. I've had a blast. And I, I jumped on a plane with a friend of mine and we flew out to Sundance, the, the film festival. And Another friend had just taken over as editor in chief at the New York Observer, which was owned by uh, at the time. It was the first media project of a, of a young Jared Kushner. Oh, I didn't realize that. And so I was like, "Hey, I'm out here. You know, and I I wanted to go to all the parties, and I couldn't get into the parties because I was I was a fucking nobody." So I said, hey, do you think I could write a daily column of like what's going on in, in Sundance? Because Sundance 
if, if you've been, it's everyone you hate from New York on a mountain. Yeah. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's and, and at the time I thought it was quite, you know, you know, I was quite curious about it. I was like, Oh, let me, let me go see. So she goes, yeah, sure. She like wrote me up a, basically a, a statement of intent to publish my column. And I, I contacted all these PR people out there. And a friend of mine at the time, uh, Carson Griffith was with us as well. And she was working in, in New York media at the time. So she knew all the PR people at every event. So I basically went from never having written a sentence that wasn't a short email in my life to writing a daily column, uh, a, a daily gossip column on what New Yorkers were doing on this mountain. And, uh, and so it was just a surreal overnight transformation into journalist, which I'd never thought I'd ever do. Right. And because I actually sucked at writing. What I did was I would just take bullet points of each party and then just publish the bullet points. <laughs> and somehow <laughs> it shocks me that you were a bad writer because you're a very talented writer now. Well, I'm, I'm a, I write the way I speak. So it, it was right. the, the bullet points were, were quite clever because they were just me making fun of the parties and making fun of the, you know, the people like, you know, something clever about Aziz Ansari trying to hit on a girl or something, or, you know, it, it was just a little, like a, a little observation from each minute of the evening and they went really well. And, and they got a huge you know uh, amount of people in, interested. And then, so that went well and I came back and they're like, look, can you do this you know, semi full-time? We're not going to pay you full-time, but like, we'll, we'll pay you per, per column. And then, so for the next year, I went to every single party in New York city as a nightlife journalist and uh was just you know, reporting on parties and and had a blast with that and met everybody again uh, but in a different respect so I, I i had this network from my djing everyone knew me as like dj ted and then uh and then was that like, your dj name it was just my name ted gashu uh, yeah. I, I didn't i didn't i didn't say i was a dj even and so that went really well for a year and then the, the Soho Grand, the lovely people at the Soho Grand say, hey, we want to start a magazine. Do you want to be the editor-in-chief of the magazine? So, you know, in the course of a year, I went from never having written a sentence in my life to now I'm the editor of a fictional magazine that doesn't exist. And because I'd, I'd spent that whole year networking with journalists in New York who are always cash-strapped, I basically had this huge network of people that needed to write in order to live. And so I, I started commissioning stories from all my friends and paying cash on delivery. And so that took off really well. And then it was just one huge stroke of luck after another, uh, right place, right time, right network. And then I started hiring all these old Vanity Fair contributors or people that were very close to Vanity Fair and commissioning stories about, uh, about the glory days of New York, you know, like back in the eighties, like story, like doing cocaine with John Belushi in the bathroom with the Odeon mm -hmm. was like a story that I, you know, I, I got a friend of mine, Peter, to write for this uh, kind of edgy downtown magazine uh, that was trying to market the hotels. What was it called? The magazine? It was just Grand Life. It was the okay. uh, it was their website, and it was like a it was a very early, you know, what's now considered content marketing. We were just we had no idea what we we're doing. So and nobody had really invented content marketing the term yet. So we were just like doing cool stuff just in the hopes that people would associate it with the hotel, right. which is now, you know, commonplace. You know, every, every, the local donut shop has a content marketing plan. So everyone's doing it at this point. But back then it was still kind of new and fresh and it was fun. And like I said, I was able to, you know, I had like five grand a month to spend to give to my friends who were all broke writers. And it, it went really well. And then I think Graydon Carter started reading it from Vanity Fair. And then he got in touch and said, 
hey, I just had, uh, you know, I had a meeting with um, Kenneth Lehrer. He's the founder of the Huffington Post, who's also like one of the owners of the Mets and, the, you know, very powerful, influential New York media tycoon. And Kenneth Lehrer is the father of Ben Lehrer, who is the founder of Thrillist, which at the time was, you know, one of the most successful kind of young male media destinations online. So basically, Thrillist had a, a huge media platform and a huge budget. And they needed somebody to start a new magazine for them online that would allow them to kind of access a, a higher, how do I say it, like a higher class level of advertiser. So Thrillist, I'm, I'm not sure if you remember clicking, you probably weren't the market for it, but Thrillist was like, what's the best burger in the East Village? Or like, yeah. what are the top 10 strip clubs in Las Vegas? And so they were a huge force in that, in that kind of bro uh, advice world and and so they but they you know they would get Budweiser to buy a million dollars worth of ads but they couldn't get Cartier to advertise they couldn't get BMW or Porsche or anything like that so I created a uh, I met with Ben Lear a few times we had uh, we had a great synergy and immediately chemistry and I I, I mocked together the whole concept for the uh, for for what became supercompressor.com uh, in a functional iPad app that I built because I was like a total nerd about you know web development and all this stuff. I, I was really into it. And I handed it to him in an iPad in a meeting. And basically a, a week later, I had a blank check to start a magazine. Wow. And yeah, that was that started two years of seven day a week work with uh, uh, what ended up being a team of 16. You know, we had two, two and a half million unique readers a month. And it just, it blew up. And it really, it solved the problem for them and, and brought in it brought in a higher level, higher class level of advertiser, which is what they needed. And then after two years, I, uh, I was totally burnt out, you know, five years straight of like no sleep in New York. You, you lose a lot of hair. Uh, <laughs> you, your liver is done. You know, yeah. you, you're dating like all kinds of random people and, and you, your lifestyle is just really unsustainable. For sure. And I, I got... I got offered the chance to go uh, take over as editor in chief of this website that I loved, which was called Petrolicious.com. Right. And I was at that point, like I said, I was so burnt out and the money was right. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I'm moving to LA, like the classic New Yorker burnout story. Mm -hmm. I'm going to LA. And so I did. And I, I moved to LA and then 2015, I, I started scaling Petrolicious for them. You know, when I got there, they had like 20,000 Instagram fans and like 15,000 readers a month. And when I left, they had uh, a million readers a month or half a million or something like that. And then you know, 500,000 Instagram fans. So I, I spent wow. the next two years building that. But along the way, I started traveling the world on behalf of the magazine to go to all these car events everywhere on earth. So um, in 2016, you know, I was dating a girl in London. I was commuting back and forth to London. And... And then, yeah, it just went, just kept going full gas. And then in 2017, I was, I, I tried to see if there's a way I could buy Petrolicious and with the owner at the time, he didn't want to, it wasn't, it's not the path he wanted to go. And he, he wanted to keep me kind of in my position, give me a raise, et cetera. And I said, look, I want to keep moving around the world. And I don't want to have to worry about the fact that I had to fly back to LA. So I left and I started consulting. And then a month later, Porsche, Germany, or Porsche Global, they knocked on the door to create uh, what is now Type 7. So wait, was was Super Compressor automotive related? It was everything. It was a it was a it was a buyer's guide with long form content, experiential stuff. You know, it was everything from test driving a Bugatti Veyron all the way to let's try snorting powdered alcohol 
uh, on video, you know, <laughs> like it, it was, it was everything you could imagine. Right. And some of it went really, really viral. Like, and, and some of the stuff was just goofy and fun. Like, I think we, we ranked all 50 state quarters once. That's hilarious. <laughs> like to give you an idea of how, of how silly and fun it was. There was one that went like, it had like 10 million views. It said all 50 state flags ranked. <laughs> and we just like we just like took we, we just like took the piss out of all these states just to you know not not that I could ever say that Colorado has a bad flag or something like that but we, we would just create a fictional reason why Colorado's flag was worse right was worse than Kentucky's or something like that and every little local news outlet from all these states was like men's website super compressor asserts that Kentucky's flag is not not as good as Florida's <laughs> like it, it was like it was like Ludicrous. super compressor is two years of that plus like really actual thoughtful like you know the speakers the mega booms yeah like so we were the first people to ever receive a mega boom in the U.S. like I had a wow. friend who worked at Logitech we, we were like the launch publication for the mega boom and I was like this is without question the best speaker I've ever used and lo and behold it became, you know, and so there was a lot of actual objective, like this is, you know, finding shit that was really good yeah, and encouraging people to try it and buy it. And, you know, we, we were dictating huge, huge, huge amounts of, of purchasing power because we were so red and thrillist still to this day, I think, you know, they own SEO results that are just invaluable. Like I said, that top 10, I think if you Google top 10 strip clubs in Las Vegas, they still own the number one slot on Google for that you know, for, for better or worse. Uh, that's... <laughs> Maybe people aren't writing about that as much now. No, but like, I'm not judging the people that, that click on that article. They, they've made their own decisions about how they want to spend Absolutely. their time in Las Vegas. <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> but I remember sitting in meetings and being like, that link is worth $2 million a year. Yeah. Of, of ad revenue. And I was like, wow, like just, it, it was, it was a machine that company. And I think it still is. I, I'm, I'm not so in touch with the guys over there. A lot of my team that was working with me five years ago is still there. So yeah, wow. everyone is, as far as I know, everyone is doing very well. And, uh, but that was, that was a really crazy chapter. Sounds that. I found a profile on you on the Porsche website as the editorial director of Petrolicious, which seemed like such a cool piece of foreshadowing. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were our biggest advertiser. So you know, at Petrolicious, we were creating a lot of content on behalf of Porsche. And it was really done with a lot of care and love. And, and it was done in a really thoughtful way at a very high budget. So, you know, we had a really intimate relationship with them. So when I was contacted by them, it wasn't like it was out of the blue. Right. We had a working relationship for years. And it led to a 16-month development process and procurement process, which it nearly bankrupted me, but frankly, I was, I was like 80 grand in credit card debt when I started it just because I, w I took 16 months off to only focus on the development of a project. Wow. It, when you're in the development of a project, you're not getting paid. Wow. So that's crazy. It was definitely, it was, it was a huge gamble, but this turned into, you know, what's now able to support a team of five people. We've got, you know, something like 60, 70 contributors around the world. We're commissioning original films every month with some of the best uh, short film directors in America and abroad. And it's now, you know, we, we we're growing like leaps and bounds and, and I've got amazing partners at Porsche. My, my direct colleague at Porsche, um, Franzi Jostak is, uh, is, is just fantastic. And, the, and, and to see that we have the, uh, the buy-in from a, a company like that, that is so close to my heart is, is gotta be the, one of the coolest feelings on earth. So, I'm really lucky to, to be doing what I'm doing with Type 7 and I love my team and, uh, you know, everyone who works on it is really, really special and, and it's sustainable. 
no one's burning out. We, we all work at the right amount, at the right pace, at the right flexibility. We don't have an office. So, you know, part of my company's normal way of doing business was I would rent a house for the whole team in a new city every six to eight to 12 months. And we would all go live there together and create content from there and learn about the city. So right as lockdown started, basically I'd, I'd rented a house in, in Japan in Yoyogi Park in Tokyo for my whole team to go live in for the month of March, uh, 2020. So obviously we couldn't, we, we couldn't get there, but, uh, that, that was, that's kind of our normal MO is we're all, we're, no, we're nowhere near each other. Typically I've got guys, uh, you know, I've got Thomas, my, my colleague down in Sydney, I've got Nat in London or just outside of London, you know, we've got people everywhere. So for me, you know, I, we, we were, we were bizarrely well suited to a pandemic. Uh, I don't think a single thing changed in our, our workflow, except for the fact that we don't get, we don't get to hang out every few months. But you know, there are people doing a lot worse, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. We met the I think the summer after you started the magazine, and I always find it so incredible when I meet someone whose personality seems so perfectly in line with with what they do. And I'm not knowledgeable about cars, but you've succeeded in creating a world around Porsche that is so demonstrative of your insatiable curiosity. And you have this excitement around sharing things that you find interesting in a way that really draws people in, like whether they're car people or not. And it's equally, it's always equally entertaining and educational. So bravo on that. Uh, I'm I'm really somebody who's incapable of of doing anything I don't want to do, and it's very kind of you to pay me the compliment. Uh, but honestly, if I wasn't doing something I wanted to do, I'd be doing nothing. So, yeah, like, like I said, I I'm no longer capable of working in a fictional environment that I hate in order to be able to live for the weekend. It's just not it's not a reality that I can even fathom. So, you know, my biggest stress, like this past week, is like, how do I? Like, we're producing a film on daniel arsham the artist and yeah. like I, i'm just like having my mind blown talking to a color grader about how we want to recreate certain colors on screen so that they are playable on all different devices and you know like that that is a problem i'm like wow that's so cool mm-hmm. it's not even, it becomes it becomes not even a problem it's just like a whole learning discovery yeah and as a result the video will be much better because i'm just like this is awesome but if somebody was like you know get me those tps reports i'd be like i'm just gonna <laughs> shoot myself sorry i I, i'll just commit seppuku right here i'll I'll just (laughs) there's just no way so uh, you know for me it's all about just only saying yes to the opportunities that that i would do for free Mm -hmm. if that makes sense absolutely everything that i do i would do for pleasure and uh, luckily enough i I get to do it for you know uh, in a way that allows me to enjoy my life so i don't know I'm, i'm i'm a i'm a very lucky guy but i'm also somebody that just I say no to everything because there's just so much I don't want to do. And and that's it's, it's sometimes can be a bit heartbreaking to say no to things, you know, like mm. you have a, a really close friend who says, Hey, I really want you to work on this. And, and like, I love the friend. I'm like, but I hate the project. And I'm like, and I have to, and I always just, if something isn't immediately like, yes, I want to do that now. Like if, if, if I don't want to drop everything and go do that thing. If it's not a fuck yes, it's a hell no. Yeah, I'm just I, I know my gut well enough. And I'm like, if I'm already flaking on it, I'm going to really phone it in and like burn my reputation. So I, I only ex- I only accept work that I'm like, wow, I would drop everything to go do this. I would volunteer to do this. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know that feeling. The idea of having an Instagram only magazine makes so much sense given the time we all spend on that platform. But I'm impressed that a legacy brand like Porsche would get spending energy and time and money on that specific platform. What was that conversation like over those 16 months? How what was the conversation that resulted in Type 7? Well, Porsche is quite unique in the car world because they have a, a real issue that most car brands don't, which is that they have an aging customer base. Mm. Every brand has an aging customer base. But the nature of the Porsche product is that it's historically always been associated with somebody who has already made it. Right. Uh, it was aspirational, like, you know, little kids would have Porsche posters on their wall for sure. But, you know, the average age of a Porsche customer two, three years ago was something close to 50 years old. Okay. And, you know, if you're talking about a company that wants to be around for another hundred years, if 80% of your customers are already 50, you know, what does that look like? you know, in, in, in 20 years, like, are, are they buying new Porsches at 70? Sure. Some of them might be, but like, you have to constantly be thinking about how do we get the next generation interested? And the conversation that happens marketing wise at Porsche is, is so far away from any other marketing conversation I've ever had with a company. Cause they're, they're just thinking on a generational scale. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been around for so long now and they're, they're so good at what they do. You know, I, I barely even have to worry about thinking about marketing the product. Uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about marketing Porsche. We're talking about how do we talk to people that are 18 right now who are living in New York City or, or cities around the world who don't even have a driver's license, who use Uber, who think cars are lame. And you know, how do we make sure that there are still people that are passionate about a car brand that, that instills so much passion in this current generation? So Type 7 is, was initially constructed to, to try to reach people in a way that was not marketing. You know, we're not marketing Porsche on Type 7. It's, it's a full-fledged editorial platform dedicated. 75% of it is not even car-related. Right. And my concept was simple. It's like, you know, Porsche is inherently beautiful and, and elegant and interesting and artistic and you know, a, a car to me is is this is the culmination of of fifteen different disciplines all rolled into one. You've got design, you've got color, you've got engineering, you've got artistry. So for me, I, I don't think it's a challenge to explain to somebody why a car that's as beautiful as a Porsche is interesting and why they should care, even if they don't care about cars, why they should still care about Porsche. So what we came together to to achieve as a team was how do we weave the story of Porsche? into the world of architecture and design and art in a way that's completely organic because our generation and and the generation below us Alex we are completely numb to ads you know we do not respond mm. to a billboard we don't respond to a pop up we've been so programmed to tune all this out and as a result you know i, I said guys we can't market i'm sorry we're, we're not going to we're not going to do Porsche ads yeah we're going to go around the world. And, and they were like, you know, how do we get young people to be inspired by Porsche? I'm like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the story of young people who actually already are inspired by Porsche. There's guys in their 20s who fix up rusty old Porsches and drive them all over the world. Or there's guys in their 30s that, you know, have made a little bit of money and they bought their first Porsche and their, and their story is amazing. So when you do see us talk about cars, we're not talking about Porsches. We're talking about people and we're talking about human sto- human interest stories. And mm-hmm. you know, th- th- that to me is what I really want. Like, I-, I love storytelling. Like, yes, I love Porsche and all this, but, but I love telling great stories. And these guys 
really somehow I, I couldn't be so lucky again in my life, but they, they understood the concept. And then I knew in the back of my head, having worked at Petrolicious for so many years, the, the, the story is never about the car. It's about the person. So you, you, can, you can show a picture of a, the world's most incredible car and everyone goes, okay, great. But it's, it's pornographic. You know, it's, it's not, there's no substance there. Mm-hmm. But if you tell the story about how the guy saved every penny of, of his paycheck for 30 years to save up to buy the car because it was the car that his father wanted and his father right. is not no longer alive to even see him. You know, like you can find these human interest stories that are connected to cars that to me are so moving even to non-car people. Mm-hmm. So that's just what I like to do. I, I like to tell these stories and we we take that same template to even non-car stories. So architects like Norman Foster, we interviewed him recently uh, in St. Moritz about you know his passion for design and his passion for architecture and cars and how they're all woven together. And to me, that's the biggest joy in my life is to be able to do stuff like that. But then too, it also, you know, it, it also shows people that are not car people that actually cars are part of the fabric of our of our universe and are part of the same conversation as art, design, architecture. And they're not like a, a naughty word, uh, like so many people in the the generation below us are starting to feel, you know. So it's about just trying to get people passionate, not just about Porsche, but about cars in general and transportation design and how that fits into the whole larger picture of art, architecture, design, and culture. What did it feel like to move from this digital storytelling into the book series? Oh, it was like pushing print on my dreams. It was easy. Amazing. Yeah, no, I, I'm a huge book collector and an avid enthusiast so for yeah. me to actually uh you know sit there with my book designer who is like such a talent and and to, to help shape his hand to put together something that is just really it reflects the love and care we put into each story to me is such a pleasure you know I, the only downside to books is it comes with the headache of distribution distribution is like the biggest nightmare oh really if you ever get a chance to do a book get ready you're, you're gonna get royally fucked trying to get it into people's hands there's not like a plug and play option for that yet you've never tried to deliver something before christmas to your biggest fan and have him like have his heart be broken that the book is two months late because it's stuck in customs no that's like the, the hardest part of my job is like getting these emails and messages from people that have really been along for the ride since day one right and you know they, we've taken their money we've taken 100 euros from them or whatever the cost is with shipping and thanks to uh, a miscalculation by dhl and because of covid slowing down the import process it's been sitting in sea caucus new jersey mm. for uh you know like i sent books to friends in november last year and they still haven't arrived in some cases wow and we're talking six months later yeah we've got people still like where's my book and so that's that's probably the biggest uh, struggle that that comes along with printing uh anything is that you have to find a way to get it around the world and Pre-COVID, this wasn't so hard because I'm not sure how much you know about international logistics, but every airplane that flies around the world, so like your average American Airlines flight flying New York to London, you know, 50% of the cargo space in there is not baggage, it's mail. I didn't realize that. Wow. So COVID decimated the entire global infrastructure network for getting things around the world. We couldn't have chosen to ship things in a worse time. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm sure even, even in the U.S., 
shipping things that isn't FedEx overnight where they've like chartered a plane to get it there. You know, if you ship something snail mail in the US, you'll notice today it's like 60% longer wait times to get it there than anywhere else. So I can bitch on and on about logistics. (laughs) That's the one heartbreaking thing is when you pour everything of your soul into making something really beautiful Mm -hmm. and people really want it. And then they go, oh, shit. (laughs) You know, (laughs) somebody just hasn't been doing their job properly in customs because they're working on a shift basis because they they can only have 30% of the workforce in there some COVID regulations. It's like, oh, well, death by a gazillion paper cuts. Maybe, maybe delayed gratification is good for our generation. Tell that to somebody who's given you a hundred euros. <laughs> fair. Totally not, fair. Yeah. <laughs> and they also, you know, they've, they've given it to Porsche. It's not like they gave it to some guy named Steve down the street who right. like, maybe he's going to hook it up. Right. He might hook it up later. It's like, you've given this money to one of the world's largest corporations, technically. Yeah. So it's like, uh, yeah. hey. Yeah. It's not like an Etsy guys, market. Yeah, no. So it's, that, that's probably one of the biggest challenges of type seven, but you know, we, we're coming out of the end of that. And I think uh, global, infrastructure will improve over the next six months so uh you know by by volume three we're going to be cooking again so i'm not not too stressed here's hoping you mentioned daniel arsham and you facilitated a project with him where he made an art car for porsche in his crystallized sculpture style but it was fully drivable how did that project come about so another part of my job for porsche outside of type 7 is i try to bring them interesting projects Mm -hmm. there's a brand team at Porsche that's responsible for everything from making sure that the car looks correct in the new Bad Boys movie, all the way down to commissioning art cars from people like Daniel Arsham or working with uh, other artists that we've you know, been working on together. So, you know, based on the fact that I'm out in the field, you know, it's very difficult for people working at a large corporation to be on the ground at events, meeting with people. So, I'm just always on the lookout for interesting opportunities for, for Porsche to do something really special. Mm-hmm. And, and Daniel has become a good friend and uh, I've really gotten him, you know, he's, he's totally sick in the head now for, for Porsche. I think he just bought his sixth Porsche. <laughs> but when I met him, I think we met just because I was a huge fan of the, what he did with the Ferris Bueller car, the Ferrari yeah. from Ferris Bueller. Yeah, I saw that one. And I got, I got in touch with a mutual friend or on Instagram. And I was like, hey, this is really cool. And, and then I, I connected him to my friend Dominic at Porsche. And I was like, guys, we should do a, a 911 like this. And, uh, and he goes, actually, yeah, it's pretty. It, basically, it, it was a, you know, a three-minute conversation. It was like, yes, we should do this. Mm-hmm. And then a six- to eight-month procurement process. And then production process, all this. and then. That car is now touring around the world. And that's one of like, you know, three or four different projects like that that are ongoing. Amazing. So that's that's my greatest privilege is that I get to go, you know, act as a conduit between the worlds that I get to play in as an editor and, you know, help find amazing opportunities for Porsche to get active in in a three-dimensional way like you know to commission works of art like that mm-hmm. which is something that that car companies historically have always done i mean yeah bmw was famous for you know commissioning art from andy warhol or alexander calder uh, you name it and and so there's lots of there's lots of precedent for that kind of i don't know uh, how do i say it like uh brand patronage mm. of the arts and so I, i'm i do my best to try to find opportunities like that for, for the brand yeah, I caught an Instagram live you did with Daniel at the beginning of lockdown, and you talked about that history of the art car. Is that a concept that you want to continue exploring with Porsche? 
Yeah, I mean, we're doing a project right now with Porsche China that's really interesting uh, that we will all be able to talk about in a few months, hopefully. Uh, another person I, I introduced, uh, Arthur Carr from uh, this brand, L'Art de l'Automobile. Yeah, we had dinner with him. Yes, that's right. And he is um, he's working on something that's going to blow everyone away. So there, there's a lot of things in the works. You know, just because I can't talk about them or post about them doesn't mean that there's not a lot of stuff going on. So I'm, I'm very, very excited for the next year to two years of, of just long-term projects that we've been kind of taking away on in the background. There's a lot of cool stuff coming. Amazing. You're also a global ambassador for St. Moritz and you just spent a good part of the winter there. It's a very chic job title. What exactly does that entail? I love St. Moritz and I started going there four years ago. And um, originally, you know, I got in touch with the I met the board of tourism there when I first started going and it, it happened totally organically. And, and there's multiple brand ambassadors for, for the town. And each one of us acts as a kind of a, how would I say it? Like a testimonial so that in our respective fields. So my job is to help make sure that interesting car events, interesting car people and interesting people in, in my universe know about St. Moritz and I can answer questions with authority about what the town is like and I can introduce them to the right people. So like if an artist wants to do an activation there, like right now, I didn't work on this, but for instance, Damien Hurst has something like 60 pieces of arts, uh, sculptures speckled around the town and on the frozen lake. Wow. So there's, cool. the town is really forward thinking on its marketing and, and the, the tourism board really operates much more along the lines of a board of a luxury company like Chanel. Mm-hmm. And they think of the brand in the same sphere. And and truthfully, it, it, I, I think it is. And I would say the same if I wasn't working for them. You know, it's 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 got to be one of the most recognizable tourist destination names on earth. Right. And so it has a long history of being a patron of the arts and having some of the most interesting and eccentric people on earth coming to stay there. And I just make sure that in my community, people know about it. And it's, it's really a pleasure. And I, I have an apartment there. And it's really something anywhere in the Alps is special, but for me, St. Moritz is special because there is a, a truly global community that comes there of some of the most interesting people on earth. Mm-hmm. And not, not just wealthy people, it's a, a collective of, of some of the, you name it, the kind of interesting person you'd like to meet, there's a good chance you'll bump into them there. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, uh, I rented a house there and I, I said, look, I'll, I'll just have this be my kind of winter hideout. Uh, but truthfully, I'll, I'll also spend the summer there. It's really a fantastic place that I, I love very dearly, and I'm very lucky to call it somewhat of a home at the moment, I guess. Yeah, that's wonderful. I feel like even their history of those incredible posters that were made advertising St. Moritz, the marketing has always been so in line with art and culture and interesting people. So it's it's wonderful to be a part of that legacy. Well, St. Moritz uh, invented the concept of winter tourism. So in right. the 1850s, they were the first... Historically, resort towns in the Alps were always these were summer retreats. You know, you, you went there in the summer, like or like if you had tuberculosis, you went to the Alps. Yeah, you know, like to get clean air. Like these were these were health spa retreats for the world's elite uh, who could afford to to live there. You know, 150 years ago, and then this one guy, Johannes Badrut. This was back in the days where if you went on a holiday you moved somewhere for three months right so we might be going back to that for a bit yeah no i mean that's definitely but these people would actually end up redecorating a hotel suite with their furniture and belongings from back in the uk for instance so 
you know, you, you had you, you had Queen Victoria spending two months a year in St. Moritz, for instance. So it was always just this health retreat where people would go to rejuvenate in the summer. And this guy, Johannes Badrud, who owned a hotel, uh, he, he made this very gentlemanly bet with his guests. He goes, look, I, I live here year round. I spend, the, you know, obviously I, I'm here in the winter and I find it so beautiful he said, I'd like to invite all of you, he, basically all of his t- top guests. He's like, I invite all of you to come spend the winter here. And if you don't like it, I'll pay for everything. Wow. And they all came and they fell in love. And then all of a sudden, curling is invented. All of a sudden, figure skating is invented. All of a sudden, bobsleigh is invented. All of a sudden, all these amazing winter sports that we now call like the Winter Olympics. Yeah. That all started there because a bunch of very wealthy English people were super bored in the middle of the frozen winter and they just started dicking around and having fun. And uh, and the history there is just remarkable. Every old five star hotel there will have like a, an area with all the pictures from back in the day. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, oh, here's Lord Brabazon trying for the first time on, on, on Earth. You know, the, the first man to ever try a skeleton luge. It's like, oh, oh my God. And, and the date's like 1883. You're like, ah, OK. So it's wow. uh, it's it's really quite funny. Which winter sports were you were you taking part in this past year? So I ski and uh, I I, uh, I do a few things that are my mother doesn't like me doing. So I, I do what's basically a version of the original skeleton luge called the Cresta Run. Right. Uh, it's something that I'm very passionate about and uh, I'm, I'm improving every year. Uh, as I do it, but it's headfirst down a, an ice track made by hand. You're doing about 60, 65 miles an hour uh, on your chin, which is oh which is gosh. really probably the, the most sensational experience on earth. I, I can't if you're a if you're a speed kind of demon. I, I can't <laughs> say that there's anything else you should ever try, but that is really for me number one. <laughs> I'm really glad I'm not your mom. I'm sure she's terrified. Yeah, that's probably the case. So you're very transparent online about mental health, and it's super refreshing because you lead a life that many people, I'm sure, idolize without understanding the full spectrum of sacrifices and down days and challenges. How has the past year been for you with the change of pace? It depends on the week, really. I mean, I've had uh, I've had moments of like really moments of total gratefulness and and creative freedom and and you know, very lucky to be in a good place and uh, be able to work. And then there's days where I'm like, I would burn it all down to the ground right now. I don't care about any of it. I just need to get out of here. Yeah. Because I've been, you know, I did 110 flights last year and that's been a pace I've kept up for the last five plus years. So I'm used to seeing new things all around the world all the time. And Mm -hmm. I went to seeing the same things every day all the time. So for me, it was really quite a shock. And, you know, (sighs) habits that die hard you know like drinking too much or you know uh not not self-harm but just like you know trying to fill the gap in your day that used to be stimulated with new connections and new people and new everything else you end up starting to do things that are just a little bit less sustainable like you know i was drinking over the past winter i was drinking like a bottle of wine every day and yeah you just start to get into a rut and a pattern that just gets you know uh, my my biggest passion is photography and I wasn't taking pictures. Mm. So to fill that gap, I was just like socializing and drinking wine with a, with a handful of friends and just was kind of just like so numb. Yeah. And the, the logistics of, of running type seven and all these projects from a computer, 
it's for me it's it's not so difficult you know paying invoices uh, the, the logistics of running a business are are not a challenge in, in the sense the challenge is being creative and, and coming up with creative opportunities and creative you know making sure that you're telling creative stories and and to lose to lose what was my natural like fountain of creativity was really a, a gut check and then i just kind of for some reason i just sort of snapped out of it and was like no I, i'm good uh i'm gonna start moving around again and i'm gonna be safe and i'm gonna take pcr tests everything and but i i just knew that i had to start moving so it was really just a, a re- reinforcement that actually the lifestyle and the, the life that I've chosen is what I need to be doing, whether or not I get, you know, whether or not we're in a pandemic or not. So, you know, that meant, okay, how do I start getting back to some semblance of what I had, which was telling stories on the road. And so I started looking into it and it's like, actually I'm, I'm legally allowed to do X, Y, Z. So, okay, I'll start doing that. And then, you know, I, I start moving around again and I, I'm responsible. I do all the tests and all this. And I'm sure there's going to be some of your listeners who are like, well, you should stay at home. It's like, well, right. at a certain point, like I was going to do more harm to myself staying home than I would being responsible on the road. Yeah. And so I just, I, I kind of prioritize, mm-hmm. okay, how, how can I, how can I get back to what I need to be doing? And I just started moving. And, you know, whether that was even just down the road or like going to go visit another a museum in another town in Switzerland, you know, I just, I, I, I became static and I was losing it. Mm-hmm. So I found a way and, and I, I got back to where I needed to be. And right now I'm doing very well. But, you know, you, you can, without noticing that you're doing something negative to yourself, you can very quickly and very easily get down into a pattern that, that puts you in a place that you, you don't belong. Yeah. And so for me, it's it's all about just being honest and open about it and, and talking about it and, and reflecting it. You know, social media is a big part of my career and my life. Uh, and my my Instagram personally is is just an open book of what, what I'm doing that day. Mm-hmm. So if I'm like, hey, today sucks. Like everything is shit. I'll be like, uh, hey, let's talk about it. Like, why does it suck? Mm-hmm. And then people will be like, hey, actually, today sucks for me too. And then maybe on some surface level people are like well mercury's in retrograde and i'm like oh well, maybe maybe that's it yeah uh but <laughs> and I, I hired a therapist over the winter as well which really helped you know just to kind of unload basically take all your thoughts out on the table and look at them and itemize them and be like oh okay well that's the issue there's the yeah. issue it's like I, I haven't really you know i haven't left this one square kilometer in four months mm-hmm. and i'm drinking a lot of wine and it's like th- there's the issue so I need to move and I need to drink less. But until you make the decision to kind of actively look at all this stuff objectively, you're sort of a victim of it. Yeah. And then therapy and uh, and talking openly about it allows you to be more objective and, you know, make decisions that lead to your well mental well-being. And so for that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really quite pleased with where I am now, but it was definitely a journey over the last six, eight months to get to where I need to be. I'm sure. And it sounds like that rededication to movement kind of ties into this thing I heard you say one time. If you don't do it this year, you'll just be a year older when you do. It seems like that is such a big part of your guiding philosophy. Well, I'm sure many other people feel this way, but I just was like, I'd worked so hard to architect my life into a way that made me happy and fulfilled. And that fulfillment came from me being able to take advantage of all opportunities all the time. And then when this pandemic stole a year from me, I got to a point where I was like, well, either I'm a victim of it or I take, I take control again. And I'm, yeah. I find a sustainable way to be in control. 
And I think, you know, if I had said that eight months ago, people were like, get the fuck back in the house. Stop spreading. <laughs> yeah. But now everyone's like, you know, we're getting vaccinated. The, 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 the fog is starting to lift. And, you know, I've already had it. And I take PCR tests anytime I go anywhere to make sure I'm not at risk of spreading anything to anybody. And I'm like, look, it's this way or no other way. I'm sorry. Like, would you rather I, I take a PCR test and get on a train? Mm-hmm. Or would you rather I like slowly kill myself in a box? Like, uh, you know, <laughs> so, I, so I'm, I'm, I, I chose the PCR test and the train ride. Fair enough. Well, hopefully we'll find ourselves in some ridiculously undrivable car heading to the Beverly Hills Hotel yeah. for dinner again someday. Do you remember that? What was that car? Uh, which, which car was that? Who's that red? Ah, uh, that, that that was a Lancia. Uh, it was a Lancia rally car. Yeah, that, that was. It needed to warm up more. We, it was too cold at the time. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, and please enjoy Bella Italia for me. I'm I'm missing her so much. Con piacere, with pleasure. Alla prossima. Alla prossima, ciao Bella. And that, beautiful people, concludes this episode of The Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow The Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.